take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to read the Word of God right out of the chute this morning, beginning in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we work slowly through this section of Scripture, I pray that you would once again remind us of the the serious battle that we are a part of. Father, we have been singing about the, the victory that is ours in Christ. We, we thank you for the gospel. As Jason just prayed, prayed, we thank you for the inerrant, authoritative word of God. We thank you that you have properly and providentially outfitted us to live the Christian life. And so, Lord, as we come uh, to the end of this section of Scripture and move on through the rest of of this letter, we ask that you would strengthen us, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us once again to see the nature of this battle and all the, the armor that you have provided for us, your people. God, help us to be faithful in the race. God, help us to to be men and, and women and boys and girls of the word. May the word of God be at the center of our Christian lives. We ask that that would come true on this day as we study it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the constant messages that I heard growing up as a, as a young athlete was the importance of defense. As I wrote that sentence and as I reviewed it this morning, I remembered my my days as a as a student athlete and even ball games that I've been to and and you can think especially on the basketball court and you've all been at these games when the child crowns defense 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 just it, it for me it gets me going i have never been to a game when the crowd chant, chanted offense off that's just weird to me and so we recognize that defense is very, very important. Some coaches would say the best offense is a good defense. I remember the teams that Phil Jackson would coach, whether it was the Chicago Bulls or the Los Angeles Lakers. I I think of my days growing up in college when Phil Jackson coached the Bulls. And those of you who in my case, used to watch basketball. See, when they, when they stole the Sonics from us, my basketball days are over, right? But when I used to watch basketball, you think of the names Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, Dennis Rodman, and the great Michael Jordan. You know, you think of Michael Jordan on the basketball court, and he was an absolutely amazing player. Amazing moves on the hardwood, amazing shots, and an amazing score maker. But some people don't realize that Michael Jordan is, is by far one of the greatest defenders of all time. Absolutely amazing. Well, the mark of Phil Jackson's championship teams was not offense. The marks of his championship teams were always defense. We have learned the importance of defense, good defense in the Christian life. Thus far, all of the armor that we have studied is defensive in nature. 
We read about those a moment ago. We read about and we, we studied in great detail the belt of truth. We learned about the, the breastplate of righteousness. We learned about the shoes of the gospel of peace. We studied the, the shield of faith. And last week, we took time together to learn about the importance of the helmet of salvation. Here's what Paul says. Ephesians 6.13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, drop down in Ephesians chapter 6 with me to verse 17. Paul says here, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I want to draw your attention and also by way of review to that word take in verse 17. The word take comes from a Greek word that means to get your hands on physically. It means to pick it up. It means to, to, to take it up physically. And we've already seen the command to take up the helmet of salvation. Today, that same verb, that same command applies also to the sword of the Spirit. It applies to the sword of the Spirit. I want you, before we look in great detail at the sword of the Spirit, and by the way, I hope you have your Bible this morning. Because without the Bible, without the sword of the Spirit, we have no hope in the battle before us. I want you to notice with me four very important observations about the sword. We'll start very basic. First of all, taking up the sword is not optional. Taking up the sword is not optional. It is, as we learned last week, take up the helmet of salvation. We're also called to take up the sword of the spirit. This is a vital command. Once again, Paul has in his mind's eye, he envisions a soldier who is preparing to fight. And no soldier in his right mind would ever enter the battlefield without a sword. It just wouldn't happen. And so this notion of taking up the sword is not optional. Number two, observation number two, the word sword comes from a little Greek word that means, and if you're like me, I'm kind of a brave heart kind of a guy. You think of these and you see them in gift shops from time to time. And every time I see one, I think I'm going to get one of those. You know what I'm talking about, Kirk? Those massive, the ones that William Wallace, I mean, he could barely pick it up with this huge sword. That's not the sword that Paul's referring to here. He's not talking about that massive William Wallace sword. The Greek word refers to a sword that is a dagger or a short sword. This is a fighting sword. This is a sword for the battlefield. This is the main weapon that Paul had in his mind that the Roman soldier would use in the first century. And the soldier would put on all the other pieces of armor and he would take his sword, he would take his dagger, and he would march out on to the battlefield. He would never think of walking onto that battlefield without that sword. Now, the same word translated sword appears in several other New Testament texts. I want to read a few of them for you. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 51, we read, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his, what? Sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest, and he cut off his ear. The word also appears in Luke chapter 22, verse 49, where the disciples say to the Lord Jesus Christ, And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? That's that short dagger that Paul has in view in Ephesians six seventeen. The same word also appears in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that refers to Herod. It says this, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And then in Acts chapter 16, verse 27, 
refers to the sword as a weapon of choice. The verse says, when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. The sword is is a weapon that is used in hand-to-hand combat. The third observation I want you to see is that taking up the sword is a strategic offensive maneuver. While defense, as we have labored to show over the last several weeks, is so vitally important, we recognize also that there is a role for offense. And this is precisely where the sword of the Spirit comes in. Observation number four, taking up the sword, you must see, is an act of obedience. It is an act of obedience. We have already seen, as I alluded to, that the, the verb taking up is written in the imperative mood. You see, when we go to the Greek text, we can literally, and the word is to, to parse the verb, we can parse these various verbs and determine whether or not a given word is a command. And this word taken up is written in the imperative mood. But I want to move deeper into the text to show you an additional exegetical insight. I think you'll find it fascinating. The verb that is translated take up is also written in the middle voice. And I I don't refer much in preaching or even teaching to the middle voice. But whenever a verb occurs in the middle voice, here is the flavor of the verb. It means to do it by yourself and for yourself. So you go back to Ephesians 6.17 to take up the helmet of salvation, to take up the sword of the Spirit. The flavor of the the voice of the verb is to do it by yourself and for yourself. You say, how does that make any difference in my life? Well, taking up the sword is not only an act of personal obedience. Taking up the sword is an action that will reap massive amounts of benefit in your personal life and in your Christian life, to be sure. And so taken all together, these observations cause us to see the the profound reality of what it means to take up the sword. But if you will draw your attention to Ephesians 6, 17, I want you to see something, to not miss it, that this is not just any sword. This is not just any sword that Paul the Apostle refers to. Paul refers to this as the sword of the what? This is the sword of the the pneuma, the sword of the Spirit. And so in our remaining time together, I want you to examine with me some important qualities of the sword of the Spirit. The first thing I want you to see is the content The content of the sword of the spirit. Notice in verse 17, we're called to take up the sword of the spirit. Paul says, which is the word of God. It is the word of God. Now, the Greek word translated word is a a very important concept. It's a word we need to wrestle with. And it's something that may surprise you. Most of you will remember several years ago, we did a study on the Gospel of John. And I re- it, 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 it's a sermon that I remember very well, at least, in John chapter 1, verse 1. You recall that John the Apostle says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The word translated word comes from Logos, is a word that is a general statement of Scripture. It is where we get the word logic. By the way, who invented logic? God invented logic. I saw a billboard several months ago in Bellingham that said something very negative about logic and it was related to the Christian faith. And I just thought to myself, oh, where, how far have we fallen? God is the originator of logic. No one is more logical than God. He invented it. But the word logos does not appear 
in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the Greek word, rhema. Rhema simply means a word or a saying. It means a statement. It means the content or communications represented by God and His mind. The rhema, one writer says, are the sayings of God that strike home like arrows to the heart. And I know that you have all experienced the rhema of God. How many of you have ever read a verse, it was years ago, and you read a verse, and you just, you skimmed over the verse, and you did not think anything about it, other than the fact that, oh, that was a nice verse. And you might have read it several dozen times, but because... Down the road, because of some certain events that come into your life, you read that verse, and for whatever reason, it shot like an arrow in your heart. Would you raise your hand if that's ever happened to you? And you're just like, you thought, I've never seen that before. Or you might have thought, I've seen it before, but it never impacted me like that. This is the rhema of God in action. Before R.C. Sproul was a Christian, when he was in college, He's reading Ecclesiastes, and the verse says in so many words, where a tree lies, there will it land. It's not really a, a verse that you think reading in your devotions would have a massive impact on your life. But in that moment, as an unconverted person, R.C. Sproul saw in his mind's eye a tree that had fallen and had landed on the ground and was rotting. And he saw himself as that tree. And that is the verse that God used to draw him to himself. You say, that's weird. No, that's the rhema of God. That's the word of God. This morning in class, if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 13, I recounted the story of Augustine, St. Augustine, but he was not always a saint, you see. He was a pagan. He was living with a woman who was not his wife. She had a mistress. He had a child out of wedlock. He was living a very sinful lifestyle. He was committing sexual immorality as an unconverted man. One day he was in the garden and he heard the, the Latin words from a child, tolalege, tolalege, which means take up and read. And in the Bible he found nearby, he opened it up in Romans chapter 13 that says this, Starting in verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the heart of Augustine was quickened. He was raised God awakened him. He was made anew. He became a Christian on that day. And you say, wow, that's really interesting. No, that's the, the rhema. That's the word of God. Flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Next week is Reformation Sunday. And we will, as we have done in the previous several years, celebrate Reformation Sunday. But before the days of the Reformation, we had a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther who was struggling to find peace with God. He was to the point in his life where he even said, sometimes I hate God because he knew he could never measure up to the standards in God's word. And as an unconverted Roman Catholic monk, he was reading Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. And there is no question in my mind that he had read these verses many times before. But notice what happens when he reads it now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And his heart was quickened. And he became a Christian. And you say, that is wild. I say, no, that's the rhema of God. That is how the Word of God operates. John MacArthur says the apostle is therefore not talking about general knowledge. That is the logos I referred to. 
but is emphasizing again the precision that comes by knowledge and understand specific truths. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, the tempter came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every rhema that proceeds from the mouth of God. Romans ten seventeen, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the rhema of Christ. Hebrews eleven three. by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the rhema of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. This is the content of the sword of the spirit. This is the undiluted, unvarnished, inerrant, authoritative, infallible word of God. And how far we have fallen from the absolute truth of scripture. There are religious zealots. There are pastors and teachers and theologians who are playing fast and loose with the word of God. And we don't have time this morning to address all the, the minutia that is involved in that. But I think we, we know it very well that we are compromising as a people in our generation the word of God. And we do so to our great peril. This is the content of the sword of the spirit. Move with me now to the characteristics of the sword of the spirit. And I was tempted to really do a basic overview of bibliology at this point, but time will prohibit that. But I do want to cover with you two very important of bibliology. That is the doctrine of the Bible. The first is this, when we consider the characteristics of the sword of the spirit. Do you know that the Bible you hold in your hand... The Puritans would have been shocked to hear me say this. The phone you hold in your hand, the tablet you hold in your hand, the iPad you hold in your hand, whatever device you hold in your hand that contains the Word of God, this is our inerrant authority. This is our inerrant authority. One of the issues that concerns the Bible in our generation are theologians who are are moving away from biblical inerrancy. Doreen and I were looking forward to candidating at a church in Spokane, actually before we came to Christ Fellowship. Never forget the day I sat down with the pastoral team, youth pastor, worship pastor, children's pastor, one more I can't remember. And I asked one of the individuals, I said, who has influenced you theologically? And he said, Karl Barth. And I knew it was going to be a long conversation. We proceeded to talk, and this, this young man, who was the youth pastor, told me that he and the previous senior pastor used to debate back and forth the, the pros and the cons of inerrancy. And I looked this young man in the eye, and I said, Young man, if I come here to be the senior pastor at this church... We will not debate about inerrancy. You will believe in inerrancy or you will not be at this church. Amen? See, we, we don't compromise on inerrancy. What theologians like to do is they take two steps back and they, they, they begin to propose the, the notion of limited inerrancy. Listen, the word of God is either inerrant or it is not. And if it is not inerrant, I abandon the Christian faith. This is the eternal word of God. Here's what Wayne Grudem says, and this is the book we will study uh, for the rest of the year with the men in Ironman. By the way, a quick, as my British friends say, advertisement. If you have not signed up for Ironman or if you missed yesterday, it's not too late. And we want to see you there um, on Saturday, November 3rd. We'll look forward to that. This is what Wayne Grudem says about inerrancy. The inerrancy of Scripture means that the scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Close quote. I like to say it like this. God does not speak with forked tongue. Our God is not only in the heavens and does whatever he pleases, but our God is a truth-telling God. 
The word of God is our our inerrant authority. But there's a second characteristic I want to review with you quickly. That is, this Bible is our final authority. There is nothing greater. There is nothing to add to it. The word of God is our final authority. Wayne Grudem says this, The authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So you you turn to the book, you turn to the verse, you turn to the theological topic, and you say, you know, Pastor, I, I I don't think I can go with that. My response is this, then you are denying God. You are disobeying God. 2 Timothy 3.16, you know this well, says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1 verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want to challenge you with something because there's some misunderstanding on this. I want to ask, who wrote the word of God, men or God? Ah, this is going to be fun. Who wrote the word of God, men or God? And the answer is yes. Yes. You say, wait a minute. I thought this is the word of God. It's the word of God. Listen to Second Peter chapter 1 once again. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the, the beautiful thing about the authority of Scripture is this is God used the various biblical writers with their unique personalities. I love to compare and contrast these two men. You have the Apostle Paul. What do you think about Paul? Bold, sometimes maybe brash, uh, brave, courageous, dogmatic. Oh, the guy was just classic type A. You got to love Paul, the Apostle. The Apostle John. How you doing? <laughs> they call me mellow yellow. You know, the Apostle John, like totally different than the Apostle Paul. And he writes in this beautiful, beautiful prose. You read First John, for instance, and you compare it to Romans chapter 9. These are very different in their styles, but they're both the word of God. And so God will use the Apostle Paul. He'll use the Apostle John. He'll use King David, right-brained, artsy, musician, emotional, right? He'll use King Solomon. He'll use Peter, impetuous, right, as he was. He'll use all these various personalities. And God renders the final product in the exact way that he deemed fit for the people of God. He gets exactly what he wants. So who wrote the word of God? Men and God. I want to do an exercise with you and want to encourage you to jot a few notes at this point because this will help you in in dialoguing with your friends or even your Christian friends who are struggling with the authority of God's word. This is a very tightly wound argument that I've used for many years. As we think about the authority of God's word, I want to have you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. And I want to have you look with me at at one very important verse. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Some of you have this memorized. If you don't have it memorized, today's the day to memorize it. You can do it in one second. I, the Lord, do not change. That pretty clear? His being, his essence, his plans, his promises, I, the Lord, do not change. And so that is the, the first and the initial step in this argument. You tell your friend, you tell your skeptical friend, I serve a God who does not change. 
Number two, turn over to the book of Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. And look with me for a moment at verse 10. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, we read these very important words. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, you don't need to turn there. The rock, that's capital R, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. One final scripture in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. The apostle John says in clear terms, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And so God does not change, but the second step in this argument is that God is always consistent in truth. He is always consistent in truth. It was R.C. Sproul who said many, many years ago, he said, you show me a contradiction in Scripture, I abandon the Christian faith. And I, I remember as a young man thinking, wow, that's, that's something for him to say that. What, what if a, some crazy geologist or a scientist or a philosopher found an obscure verse that disagreed with something in the Old Testament and there was contradiction? Well, the reason that Dr. Sproul could make that that stunning observation is that because God is always consistent in truth. Number three, as a result of these two propositions, God will never contradict himself, as I've already indicated. And then finally, Jason read from Hebrews chapter four this morning about the sword of the spirit, sharper than any two edged sword. We recognize that because God is, does not change, because he's consistent in truth, he will never contradict himself that the word of the, the living God is our sole authority. The word of the living God must be our sole authority. The Westminster Confession of Faith at this point helps us, says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. How many religious traditions have, have added to the Word of God? You think about it. The Apocrypha, the Book of Mormon, the New World Translation, you name it. We add to the Word of God, we subtract from the Word of God, but the confession is clear. We do not add or subtract from the Word of God. Many of you know that one of my heroes is Dr. Francis Schaeffer. He went to be with the Lord in 1984. I never had a chance to hear him uh, publicly or live, but I've, I've read the works of Schaefer. And uh, my own personal view, and this is just to put a bug in the ear for moms and dads, I believe every college student, I believe every college student should read the works of Francis Schaefer. It would have an amazing effect on the church. So moms and dads, if you want to get a, a radical present this Christmas for your college student, the complete works of Francis Schaeffer. Here's what Schaeffer says. He wrote these words in 1982, months before he went to be with the Lord. He said, It is my conviction that the crucial area of discussion for evangelicalism in the next years will be the Scripture. He said, At stake is whether evangelicalism will remain evangelical. We must say that if evangelicals are to be evangelicals, we must not compromise our view of Scripture. And here is what grabbed me by the throat. Holding a strong view of Scripture or not holding it is the watershed of the evangelical world. 
Do you know Schaefer, when he uttered those words, no one even had heard of Rob Bell. When Schaefer uttered those words, no one had ever even heard the name Brian McLaren. Yet here are two individuals who have, who have utterly cast aside the authority of Scripture. Please notice two reasons for holding to a strong, uncompromising view of, of Scripture. Schaefer says, this is the only way to be faithful to what the Bible teaches about itself and what Jesus teaches about Scripture. Secondly, without a strong view of Scripture as foundation, we will never be prepared to face the days to come, the hard days to come. We have seen the content of the sword of the Spirit. We have seen the characteristics of the sword of the Spirit. Notice finally with me the conquering power of the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the divine instrument that God uses to, number one, instruct, edify, and encourage people. Acts chapter 20, verse 32, And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. That's what the word of God does for us, does it not? It builds us up. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, do a kind of a game with me. If we cast aside the scriptures, what is it that we will never have? Hope. Someone got it. If we cast aside the scriptures, if we marginalize the scriptures, if we play, play fast and loose with the scriptures, if we begin to compromise with inerrancy, with authority, with infallibility, all these things, we will not have hope. The sword of the Spirit is, is the divine instrument that God uses to instruct, edify, and encourage people. Yesterday... My brother came to me and said at Ironman and said, we really appreciate Christ Fellowship, the emphasis that is placed on the word. And that, that, that was the most encouraging thing I heard all day. Because that is so important to, to the elders at Christ Fellowship that, that everything we do is soaked and saturated with Scripture. Every service, every youth group, every Bible study, every get-together where we come together to be equipped and encouraged and edified, that the Word of the living God is at the very center of it. Notice second, the sword is the divine instrument that the Spirit uses to grow people. To grow people. First Peter chapter 2 verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. Dare I say that some of us are to the point where we need to. Would someone else say it for me? Grow up. Have you ever said to your young person, it's time for you to grow up? I think in the Christian life, many of us need to hear those words, grow up. And how do we grow up? By, by immersing ourselves in the word of God. There's a third thing that the sword of the spirit does. It convicts people. It convicts people. And I'm convinced that's why some people stay arm's length away from the word of God because they know they will be convicted. Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth in John chapter 14. In John 16, 8, he says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. If you are here this morning and you are following the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what it felt like the day you were convicted, like Luther was convicted, like Augustine was convicted, like Dr. Sproul was convicted. God drew you to himself, and then subsequent to your salvation, you realize what it means to be convicted by the Spirit. Some of you will be convicted today. Some of you have already been convicted because you're saying something like this to yourself. Maybe I should start reading the Word of God. Maybe instead of the crumbs of the Word, I need to start dipping into the meat of the Word. 
reading the word, studying the word, examining the word, meditating on the word. The word of God will convict his people. There's a fourth aspect of this conquering power, and that is that the sword of the spirit will help us to fight temptation. When Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he shows us the importance of using the sword of the spirit. Let me read it for you. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, we saw this earlier, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Then the devil takes him and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to him, to you, I will give you all authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, will it all, it'll all be yours. Jesus responds, it is written. Notice what Jesus is doing. The strategy he employs. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's not good enough for the devil. He took Jesus to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, once again, questioning his authority and deity. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. By the way, and we don't have time to deal with it. Notice how the devil is using in deceptive ways the word of God. He's misquoting the word of God. And this is what every cult member does. They distort the word of God. They deceive with the word of God. They twist the word of God. Our Jehovah's Witnesses friends. In the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was a God. They throw in an indefinite article that is never in the Greek text. My wife remembers when the Jehovah's Witnesses came to our house in Legrand. We had this really polite conversation until and i was being extra extra nice and then the woman said but you don't understand the greek says and i said oh heavens and for whatever reason i don't keep my greek text at home i keep it at church for whatever reason i had it at the house that day i said hold on and i grabbed my greek text and i said if you could read that for me then we'll tie and and she she couldn't even read the greek which big deal right that's not a problem but she didn't realize that there was an indefinite article that had been added to the New World Translation, which renders Jesus as not God. This is what the cult members do. They twist the scriptures. Notice how Jesus responds. He says to the tempter, the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him at an opportune time. Men and women, boys and girls, young people, this is our defense. We are to flee youthful lusts. We use the word of God to flee temptation. Number five, there's a fifth conquering power. That is the word of God brings joy to people. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates on it day and night. The word of God brings joy to people. Sixth, I want you to see that the sword of the spirit regenerates people. The Bible says in Titus, he, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, but the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the sword of the spirit. The Holy Spirit, rather. Romans ten seventeen, Paul says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the rhema of Christ. As we think about the conquering power of the sword of the Spirit, we realize that the Word of God does all of these things with great effectiveness. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, for it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. This is the bottom line. The bottom line is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. And that is a pastoral typographical error. So you ready for this? The Spirit of God 
Don't ever cross up the Word of God unless it's a pastoral typographical error. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God. That tells me I was getting excited while I was typing. That's the bottom line. This is the conquering power of the Holy Spirit. May I tell you that after serving as a pastor for 27 years and being a follower of Christ for, I've lost track of how many years now, since 1974, I have been engaged in somewhat of an experiment, especially in my adult years. When someone comes to me and they say that they are in a backslidden condition, when someone comes to me and they say that they're struggling in the Christian life, that they're, they're, they're having a hard time battling temptation, they're, they're making decisions that don't honor the living God, I generally ask this question. Are you reading the Word of God? And invariably, the man or the woman or the boy or the girl or the teenager says, you know, that's funny you should say that. Because actually, the more I think about it, you know, it's, it's been a while. It's been a while. I, I pick up a devotional from time to time. But no, actually, no, actually, I'm, I'm not reading the Word of God. You see, if, if we don't use the sword of the Spirit on the battlefield, and I have an image in my mind, and it's a frightening image, and I want to frighten you with it so I won't be alone in my fear. I have this image of a soldier marching out onto the battlefield in his fruit of the looms. That's frightening. So now you're frightened along with me. But isn't that what we do in the Christian life? When we, when we, the word that comes into my mind is prance. We prance onto the battlefield and we don't have the sword of the spirit. And all we do is invite the enemy to annihilate us. It's time that we as a church family dig into the Word of God and study the Word of God and meditate on the Word of God and and take it seriously. Every decision, every action, every movement, everything we do in life should, should be dictated by the Word of God. So you think about where to go to school, who to marry, what job you should have, what job you should quit, where you should go, what you should do. Everything should be guided and directed and dictated by the Word of God. When you fail to take up the Holy Spirit, rather the sword of the Spirit, you forfeit spiritual power. When you fail to take up the sword of the Spirit, you forfeit spiritual authority. When you fail to take up the sword of the Spirit, you forfeit any hope of receiving encouragement or edification. When you fail to take up the sword of the Spirit, you, frankly, invite defeat. And so, my friends, may we be people of the book. This morning, as I was walking, man, I was cold this morning. This image popped into my mind when I was a tennis coach. And I had, I had really two rules for the boys on my tennis team. Number one, no swearing. You swear, you run two miles. They're like, coach, one swear word? Yeah, that's one swear. Two swear words, you run four miles. And believe me, I did it. It was a lot of fun. Rule number two, if you don't bring your tennis racket to practice... I will invite you to go home. Now I take that back. I won't invite you to go home. I will tell you, go home. Oh, come on, coach. You're, you're just, if you heard this from Christians, you're being legalistic. Come on. I, I just forgot my racket. No, you forgot your racket. You're of no use to my team. Go home. Wow. When, when, when we don't have the sword of the Spirit... We're of no use. We're of no use in the Christian life. So may the word of God inform our every decision. May the word of God stand at the center of everything we do as a church family. May the word of God deflect every temptation. May the word of God expose every error. May the word of God guide our steps on the narrow path that leads to the celestial city. And may we wield the mighty sword of the spirit to the praise and honor of a God who is holy, holy, holy. Paul says, let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, as we come to the table, may our time at the table and as we observe the the elements, the bread and the cup, be a, a vivid reminder of the gospel. God, as we as we take a bite of the bread, as we as we sip the juice from the cup, may the, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ shine brightly in our minds. May we remember his birth. May we remember the life he lived on this earth. May we remember the moments leading to the crucifixion. May we remember the final words on the cross. May we remember the death of Jesus. And may we remember the resurrection that occurred three days later. With the writers of the Apostle, the Apostles' Creed, we believe in these things. And so, Lord, I ask that you would enable us as a church family to be men and women and young people of your book. Lord, I pray that we would never compromise the truth of the word of God. I pray that we would live the truth of the word of God. And we know that the only way we can do so is by the spirit that resides within us. And so, Lord, would you be so gracious to us us today? Remind us that you alone are the one who enables our hands for service. Every good that we accomplish in this life is prompted and directed and fueled by a sovereign God. So we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for this special time of worship that we...